0: Way The Chronicles uh, were all one in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I was going to say this in the sermon, but I'll go ahead and say it now. Uh, It was only the Septuagint, the uh, Greek translators of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, back around 200 or so B.C., that uh, broke Chronicles up into two halves. So uh, the author is the same for both. Uh, We're going to call him in the sermon and throughout my discussions, if if I can remember to, the Chronicler. Um, I'll say more about that in the sermon in a minute. Uh, But uh, at any rate, uh, we're going to be in Chronicles, but we're going to start in 1 Chronicles because the foundation of all that you read about in 2 Chronicles, which is Solomon and all the kings of Judah, all the way through till the uh, uh, destruction of Judah uh, uh, by the Babylonians, uh, actually goes past that, I think. Anyway... um, all that comes in 2 Chronicles is all based on what happens in 1 Chronicles, in particular in this passage that we're looking at today. Uh, this is, and those of you who are in Sunday school already know this, but this passage, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, is the chronicler's version of, or account of, record of, the covenant that God made with David, King David. And, not just with David, but with his seed. That is to say, his descendants and his descendant. Seed in Hebrew, uh, Zarah, uh, is the only Hebrew word that is both in the singular and the plural is identical. It's like English sheep. Uh, one sheep, many sheep. You don't say many sheeps. You say Many Zerah is the same, and it happens to be the word that also means descendance and also happens to be can also mean son or sons. So it can mean son, sons rather, or it can also mean son. It can be descendants, descendant. It can mean seed or seeds. Okay, the Davidic covenant is the foundation of all of the Hebrew monarchy, the Jewish monarchy, and um, is. The book of Psalms is all about uh, the Davidic kingship, and David in particular, but also his descendants after him. And uh, it's what the New Testament is all about, because David, his greatest son, the Lord Jesus, is, of course, what our New Testament is about. So, this is a pretty monumental text, is what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, highly significant um, in, in redemptive history. So, we are going to begin with the Davidic covenant both this week and next week, I'm going to deal with David's prayer following the, God's setting forth of the covenant. Uh, that will come next week. And then, Lord willing, we're going to dive into 2 Chronicles, the week thereafter, if all goes well. Pray for me. 1 Chronicles chapter 17, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. It has absolutely no errors. Uh, in the original languages in which it was originally given. And we have the promise in the scriptures that in faithful translations of the original, this remains to us the word of God. Authoritative word of God. God is speaking, particularly God the Son, I might add, right now. As the great prophet of the church, he speaks when it is read, particularly publicly in corporate worship. So, while it's my vocal cords, it's him. Uh, starting in verse seven, uh, verse 1 of chapter 17, 1 Chronicles. The word of the Lord. And it came about, when David dwelt in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. And it came about the same night that the word of the Lord, of God rather, came to Nathan Saying, Go and tell David my servant, Thus says the Lord, You shall not, you shall not build a house for me to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent, and from one dwelling place to another. In all places which I have walked with all Israel, Have I spoken a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be leader over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a name, like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be moved no more. Neither shall the wicked waste them any more as formerly even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will subdue your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. And it shall come about, when your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, uh, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants, one of your seed, after you who shall be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father, be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house, and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, we need your help at all times, but particularly at such times as this, uh, when there is much room for mischief on the part of a sinner like myself. Would you please forbid that that should take place? Would you please, Lord Jesus, speak through me to your people, to me as well, uh, your truth. Uh, We pray that it would affect us in ways that would honor you and the Father and the Spirit And you would grant us greater discernment and understanding of your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, have you ever built something for someone else um, out of a desire to be nice to that person or kind to that person? Have you ever done that? Where you've built something, I'll give you a few examples, and maybe you've done this, maybe you haven't, but you can at least envision what it would be like. Maybe uh, you have at some point in the in the past uh, when you've been to the beach. Maybe you built a a little sandcastle for your mommy or your daddy and s- said, "This is my gift to you." Maybe you've done that. I don't know if you've been to the beach or not and done that, but maybe it wasn't at the beach. Maybe it was after a good rain and there was a lot of mud in the side yard, and you. Gather that mud together and put rocks on it and sticks on it and made it into a kind of a mud castle. And gave it to your brother, your little brother, or your or your sister, perhaps. Um I'll give you an example of something that I did when I was a kid that I built for someone else. Now it wasn't a it wasn't a castle or a, oh, by the way, another example might be a tree fort. Maybe some of you older kids have built tree forts for younger siblings, I don't know. At any rate where you're building something for someone else because you want to do something nice for that person. I did this once when I was a kid. In fact, I can still picture it in my mind. I think I was in, I don't know what grade I was in, but maybe I was, uh, I think it was about uh, uh, 10 maybe, I'm going to guess. And I built in art class at school, I built a change box uh, for... uh, Christmas gift for my mom. And I made it, you know what I made it out of kids? I made that little change box with glue and popsicle sticks. You ever had a popsicle stick? A popsicle, you know, and the little stick that holds it, allows you to put it in your mouth. You adults know what I'm talking about. Um, anyway, uh, it was made with popsicle sticks and it was a box and it, and uh, and I, I broke some of the sticks in half to to make it. And, and my mom, I remember she put it up in her cupboard and put stuff in it for several years. Eventually it disappeared. I don't know what became of it. She might still have it, actually. Anyway, uh, but I made that for my mom for Christmas. And I was so proud of that. And I so wanted to please her with it. And I made her this thing. Anyway, maybe you've done something like that for someone else where you've made something for them. Uh, but you know... Not many people make things for other people. Um, I, I dare say, most people don't do that. Um, I think most people that do that are more are likely to be Christians. Actually, uh, now non Christians can do nice things too, but um, give because it costs it costs you something to make it costs you time and effort to make something like a like a sandcastle or like a fort or like a uh, Christmas present for somebody. It costs you. And, um, and that's a kind of a Christian quality, actually. But you know something? King David wanted to make something for someone. You know who that someone was? King David, in the passage we're looking at, wanted to make something for God. And what he wanted to make for God was a huge house. Actually, it's more often in the Bible, well, it's often referred to as a house, but it's also referred to as the temple, the Jerusalem temple. And David wanted to build, see, prior to David's day, and even during David's day, it was in a tent, the tent that was made of curtains. And, and the ark was where God dwelt on earth in a special, unique way, a really special way. The you know that box that the Old Testament talks about? It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that was the mercy seat. And that mercy seat was God's throne on earth. God is a king. And he sits on the throne, uh, figuratively speaking. And, and he figuratively sat on that throne on top of the Ark of the Covenant um, that Moses built. Uh, and it was inside a tent in David's day. And David wanted to build God a better house for his throne on earth, his earthly throne. But interesting, as you'll see in a moment, in this sermon, David really wanted, because he loved God and wanted to do something nice for God, he wanted to build God this house, but God said to him, no, David, I'm not going to let you build that house. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a house for you. That's what God said through Nathan the prophet here in this passage. And that that promise is that God is going to build his church through Jesus Christ, the the greatest son of David that David ever had. He's called David's greater son by many theologians. And he, God the Father, was going to build uh, a house for David through David's son, Jesus. And that house is us, kids. It's us. We're not a physical house. We're a household. We're a family, the Christian family, the family of God. And this passage talks about us, indirectly, but through this house that God promises to build David. So let's get into the passage. That was was an extended children's illustration. Uh, Actually, I got into some of the meat of the sermon here by doing that, but that's all right. I mentioned earlier um, that Chronicles is one book, actually, in the original Hebrew. It wasn't 1 and 2 Chronicles. It was just Chronicles. And um, it's clear that Chronicles, and I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to be referring to it as Chronicles uh, from here on out, uh, except when I ask you to turn to a certain place, in which case I'll say 2 Chronicles or 1 Chronicles. Uh, But... It's clear the evidence is uh, there's pretty clear evidence within the book itself, or the, the what we call two books, that Chronicles was composed at some point after the Jew, Jewish people the Jewish people's return from their exile in Babylon. Remember, the people were exiled; uh, 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 the Babylonians conquered in 586 BC. They conquered Judah. Uh, this was after Israel had been conquered in 722 BC by the Assyrians, never to be heard from again, most of them. They were absorbed by the Assyrian uh, nation, Uh, but but the Jewish people, the people of Judah, went into Babylon, uh, and then a number of years later, actually seventy. No, that seventy was when the temple was rebuilt. Uh, It was about uh, it was about fifty, just under fifty years. The first wave of returnees came back to uh, Judah uh, once Cyrus issued his decree. Uh, that they could return, and there was two more waves of exiles. Point is, Chronicles seems to have been written at some point, at least after the first exile, um, and maybe even later than that. So, to give you possible dates of when this book was written after after the the uh, return of the Jews to Israel from Babylon. The earliest possible date is when the first exile was, or the first return, rather, and that's five. 39 BC, 538, 539 BC. That's the earliest this book could be have been written. The latest possible date for its composition is probably about 330 BC. So there's about a 200 year window in there when this was written. We don't know. We can't be sure. Now, as far as the author is concerned, the early Jewish tradition said that Ezra, the scribe, was the primary author of Chronicles. He also is thought to be the uh primary author of the book by his name Ezra and also of Nehemiah but he early Jewish tradition said he was also the author of of uh Chronicles first and our first and second chronicles uh but here's the problem with that uh, that conclusion is there's no historical or biblical evidence indicating that Ezra wrote Chronicles. Now, he might have. But to just assume it is kind of gratuitous. Um, So I'm not going to assume it. Although there have been times in the past when I've said Ezra wrote Chronicles, I'm backing away from that. Uh, uh, I'm changing my mind, in other words. Uh, I'm going to call him the Chronicler, maybe Ezra did it, but we don't know. But so from now on, in this sermon and in subsequent sermons in Chronicles, I'm going to refer to this inspired, and he was inspired, human author of this book, uh, our two books, I'm going to refer to him as the Chronicler, as I uh, indicated earlier. So, back to the passage that we're looking at, 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Um, This, as I've already indicated, is the record of the establishment of the Davidic Covenant. God entered into a covenant, it's actually an administration of a covenant, uh, with David, that we refer to often, uh, usually, as the Davidic Covenant. Now, the concept of covenant is central to the Bible's message and teaching. That's why the, um, the conference... One of the reasons we chose that as the as the theme of the conference in September that we're going to have is because it is so central to understanding the Bible, understanding redemptive history. Um, it's just central to Christianity, which is why the name of our church is Covenant Presbyterian Church, by the way. And so covenant is essential. And there are in the Bible, essentially, keyword is essence there, essentially, there are essentially... Only two divine human, with God as one party, human beings as the other, there's only essentially two divine human covenants in the Bible. Those two covenants are the covenant of works. That's what we uh, historically have referred to it as, sometimes referred to as the covenant of life. But it's the covenant that God made with the first Adam in the garden uh, when he said uh, in the, you know about the tree, don't eat of the tree. That was a covenant that Adam was required to obey. He was required to refrain from actually doing something, which is to do something, stay away from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and not partake of its fruit. Uh, And we know how that worked out. Uh, So that was the first, that's essentially the first covenant in the Bible, and the second essential covenant is the covenant of grace. This was made not with the first Adam, but with the Second Adam, that uh, that Paul represents uh, in a couple of places as the second Adam, both both in Romans chapter five and First Corinthians chapter fifteen, uh, Jesus is represented as the second Adam. The first Adam represented all of humanity, all of his biological descendants, with the exception of Jesus. I might add there, he had he had he got his humanity from his mother Mary, uh, but he wasn't uh, under that covenant of works, um, even though he fulfilled it uh, when he came to earth. So Adam represented all of mankind, but the second Adam represented a subset of all of humanity, and that is those whom God wished to save down through the ages. And those are the two essential covenants in the Bible. Now, as I already indicated, there have been numerous administrations, we call that uh, the term, of the covenant of grace in the Bible. I'll name them off. The post-fall Adamic covenant, uh, recorded in Genesis 3.15, the promise of uh, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That's the first expression of the covenant of grace, the post-fall Adamic covenant. Then the second one is the two-part, and it was two-parts, Noahic covenant made with Noah, Genesis 6.15. The Mosaic, or as the writer of Hebrews calls it, the Old Covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant, by the way. It's not the whole Old Testament. Um, that is recorded in Exodus 20, the uh, Ten Commandments found there. The Davidic Covenant, Second Samuel 7 and First Chronicles 17 records there. And then finally, the New Covenant, which of course is found in the New Testament uh, uh, and uh the wording is used in the uh, giving of the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper and elsewhere. Well, today, this morning, if I can get this all out, um, we are looking at the Davidic covenant administration, as recorded by the chronicler, in, like I say, in 1 in Chronicles 17. And we're going to uh, be spending at least, probably the better part of a year, maybe more, I don't know, looking at this uh, 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 looking at the Chronicles. And we're going to be looking, as we look at the Chronicles, especially Second Chronicles, we're going to be looking at the lives and actions of numerous descendants of David. Royal descendants of David, who themselves, with David, were parties to the covenant of the Davidic covenant. All of his royal descendants were parties. Remember, it's uh, you and your seed you and your descendants, you and your sons, and grandsons and great-grandsons, and so on and so forth. Uh, As a result of their being biologically descended from David, they were parties to this covenant, this Davidic covenant. By the way, evidence of that is found in verse 11. Let's turn to verse 11. We're finally going to get to the text here. Um, We read there, uh God speaking now through Nathan. He's speaking to Nathan, telling him what to say to David. He says in verse eleven, It shall come about, when your days are fulfilled, that you must you, David, must go to be with your fathers. Uh, when that happens, that I will set up one of your descendants, one of your Zerah, after you, who shall be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. That's remember it's singular and it's plural. I will I will set up uh, actually, the liter- literally, it's, I will set up your descendants after you, uh, uh, is the, the literal translation of the Hebrew there. So it's not just David. It's also his, his royal seed who are descending, who are parties to this, human parties to this covenant that God made, uh, recorded here. Background on this passage, let me give you just a little background on this passage. David has replaced Saul as the new king uh, of uh, the twelve tribes of Israel. Now remember, even though this was written many hundreds of years after David's day, it's recording what's happening in David's day here at this point. Um, And so David has replaced Saul, and David's formal anointing of Israel as Israel's new king, formal anointing of David as Israel's new king. That happened in Hebron, you may recall. And record of that is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. We won't turn there. But that's where his anointing was as Israel's king. And since that time, since the anointing of Israel's king, King David, there have been some significant events that have happened. We're not going to look at them, but I'm just going to remind you of them. David, with his armies, has conquered the Canaanite city of Jabus and conquered its inhabitants. And David and his people have taken up residence in that city. Uh, chapter 11 of First Chronicles speaks of this, verses 4 and 6. And then he has fortified that city with walls, and it has become uh, his city. And indeed, the city is renamed, as we talked about on Sunday earlier, the city of David, a.k.a. Jerusalem, or Zion as we read in uh, chapter 11, verse 7 of First Chronicles. This is all, by the way, a background. Okay, now I'm going to get to my points, and by the way, I may, we'll see how this goes. Uh, two points in this sermon. Um, you may have to stand up at some point. Um, hopefully this won't go too long. Two points. This is important. David announces his intentions to build a house for God. Point one. His second point, the second point in this passage that comes from this passage, Yahweh announces his intention to build a house for David. That's what's going on here in this passage. Those two things summarize the whole passage. David announces his intention to build a house for God. God announces his intention to build a house for David. So first, David announces his intention to build a house for God. Specifically, as I've already indicated earlier, a temple. That's the house we're talking about, a temple in which God's throne, which is the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant, is to be placed. David wants a more permanent dwelling place for God's throne. You recall, in David's day, as already indicated, the Lord dwelled in a unique, localized way above the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, between the two cherubim that were that were gilded gold facing each other on that mercy seat. Um, And God had first promised that he would dwell there back when he instructed Moses how to build the ark, back in Exodus chapter 25, verses 21 to 22. I won't turn there uh, for the sake of time, but it's found there. And God says, I will dwell there. Um, And that, uh, that God actually did dwell there by David's day is evident from what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. And again, I won't bother looking there, but you can look at it yourself if you'd like. God says, the text says God is dwelling there above the ark between the cherry bean. Um, and again, that's God's everywhere, but it's in a special way that he dwelt was dwelling there. and that So that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant was God's earthly throne. Where God dwelt in that unique way that he didn't dwell anywhere else in the cosmos. So, when God himself was enthroned above the mercy seat on the ark... And, or since that was the case any house any temple any building that would be built to house the ark of the covenant would also in a manner of speaking be housing god himself right cuz god's god's throne where god figuratively sits is above the ark so so thus the house can be referred to as god's dwelling place because of that special localized presence of god's uh of god himself and David, at this particular point in time that the chronicler is reflecting back on, David thinks, at this point in his reign, it's high time that God and his throne have a more permanent dwelling place to dwell in than under a bunch of tents, or curtains, rather, that I think were made of porpoise skin, I want to say. At least part of it was made of porpoise skin. Maybe that was, anyway, porpoise skin was involved. Um, and David thinks it's time that that should change, and so we read there in verse one. What we read, uh, it came about when David dwelt in his house, his own house that he built. That David said to Nathan the prophet, "Behold, I am dwelling in the house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains, referring to the tabernacle, to that tent, if you will." So, what prompts David to want to do this, to want to build a house, a more permanent structure for God's throne, God and His throne to dwell in? Well. It just so happens in the ancient Near East, kings were in the habit of doing what David wanted to do. They were in the habit of celebrating. Usually, it was celebrating their own success, the success of their own reign, by constructing one or more temples for the gods that they and their subjects worshipped. And it was a kind of a way of kind of celebrating the god, but also celebrating themselves by building a temple for the god. Uh, but really it was self-congratulatory kind of behavior, uh, oftentimes in the case of the pagan kings. And that was just a common practice. And while David's behavior as king differed in many ways from that of his contemporaries in the nations surrounding Israel, his determination to build a temple for his God, Yahweh, was not one of those areas of difference. He wanted it as well. So, by this point in his reign, uh, David's Kingship has been sufficiently well established and has been sufficiently successful that uh, he too feels it's time to express. Now, it's on David's motives were much purer than that of the other kings. David really wanted to because he he knew that God was responsible for his success, and he wanted to honor God by building this more permanent structure for the Lord's throne. Um. Uh. Uh and express that devotion in this concrete way of a building enterprise. Um, but God says, God responds, and he responds through Nathan. give me, not, let me get, before I get to God's response, we've got to get to Nathan's response. And Nathan's response is initially, thumbs up, go for it. He says in verse 2, Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart. Another way of saying, that sounds like a great idea. Go for it. For God is with you, which was true. right? So Nathan approves, unsurprisingly. That sounds like a great idea. Because why? He he knew, again, it was customary for kings to do such a thing, undertake such projects for their gods. uh, And Yahweh was the only true god, so all the more... Should Yahweh get a temple? And also, Nathan knew that David's motives, unlike that of four, of pagan kings, was were noble and right. He wanted to honor the Lord. Um, it's impo- so he says, "Yes, go and do all that's in your heart." Now, it's important to note this. Nathan's initial response here in verse two was immediately after David said what he said to him. Nathan, his response reflected his personal opinion at that point in time. He just thought it was a great idea. He had clearly not yet consulted God as to God's thoughts on the matter at this point in time when he says what he says there in verse 2. But, as we read in the very next verse, later that evening, that same night, um, the Lord speaks to Nathan. And he learns what God wants. Uh, He finds out what God's will. Which brings me to my second point. I'm actually going to do this in a reasonable amount of time. Second point. So David wants, announces his intention to build a house for God, but point two, Yahweh announces his intention to build a house for David and his uh, greater son. And uh, that is in uh, verses basically uh, 3 through uh, through 14. Now, he begins, the Lord does, he's speaking now through Nathan, and it came about that same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, um, and he says in verse 4, Go and tell David my servant, thus says the Lord, and here's what Nathan is to tell David, You shall not build a house for me, to dwell in. So God begins his response to David's stated desire to build a house for the Lord by telling him, uh-uh. No, I do not want you to build a house for me, David. That's his initial response. Kind of like, wow. He have thought he have said yes. It isn't that God somehow disapproved of the idea of his throne, the ark, um, being housed in a more permanent structure than a tent that it was currently in. He didn't disapprove of that idea, actually. Uh, We actually know this because uh, that he actually wanted a more permanent dwelling for the ark, a temple as opposed to a tabernacle, because of subsequent events and subsequent divine revelation that we learn of afterwards. That the Lord wanted a permanent house. It's just that he didn't want David to be the builder of that house slash temple. And this is confirmed, by the way. I've been boning up in my Hebrew in the last several months. And this is confirmed by what's in, it found in the Hebrew. Uh, in the Hebrew, the pronoun, you, in verse 2. So look at verse 2. Nathan said to David, do all that is, wait, is that verse 2? No. Hold on here. Gotta find my place. No, it's not verse 2. Yes, no it is. No, it's verse 4. There we go. That's why I'm having problems. Verse 4. So in verse 4, in the Hebrew there, the pronoun you, um, you shall not build a house for me, God speaking to David, that word you there is strongly emphasized in the Hebrew. Um, in, In the original Hebrew it was written. Which means the writer, the chronicler, And the Holy Spirit is saying, the emphasis here is on you. I don't want you to build this house. It's not that I don't want the house built. I just don't want you doing it. I want your son, who is my son, doing it. Who approximately is Solomon. But ultimately is Christ. And he says to him, I don't want you building this house. And he gives later in chapter 28, verse 3, the reason why he doesn't want David to be the builder of the house, and that is because David was a man of war who had shed much blood. And he didn't want such a man. Uh, and the speculation as to what that means, why that was the issue. I'm not going to get into that right now. Uh, but uh, that was the reason that was given, chapter 28, verse 3, because of that. David, I don't want you building this house. Well, then, after telling David that, he then goes on, the Lord says, he goes on, and he informs David that he, Yahweh, he's going to build a house for David. In verses 7 through 14, God says that I'm going to build a house for you. David, he was wanting to build an actual house brick-and-mortar house, a a building for the Ark of the Covenant to rest in, and for God's throne to rest in. He wanted to build God a physical structure, a temple. David and others, by the way, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Jewish folks, often referred to the temple as God's house, God's earthly throne. Uh, uh, And and because that was the case, by the way, um, Hold on here, I'm, I'm getting away from my notes. He often refers David often referred to it as God's house because it housed the throne of God, and thus, in some sense, housed God himself, who figuratively sat on that throne. But while the house that David hoped to build for God was a material house, a physical structure, the house that God says he wants to build for David. And promises to build for David is a dynastic house. A dynasty. A household. Verse 10. Again, he says in the end of verse 10, the latter part of it there, God speaking, I, Moreover, I tell you that the Lord, and this is the Lord himself speaking, Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. David. The Lord's going to build a house for you. Now, I just said it's a dynastic house. Well, here's why. And for those of you who are in Sunday school, this is going to start sounding familiar. The Hebrew word, uh, and I'm going to say it several times, so the Hebrew word bayit, bayit, which the New American Standard translates as house in verse 1. Go back to verse 1. So, when David says, behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar, um, but the ark of God, of the covenant of the Lord, is under curtains, house there is the word bayit. It's referring to a physical structure that David lived in. Um, And David said, essentially, I want to build one of those bayits for God, a physical house for God's throne. So it can be God's house. But back in verse 1, he says, the word word there means house, Okay, in verse 1, as David's talking about it. But that word, by it, can also mean household. Both translations of by it are equally valid. It depends on the context as to which translation is correct. And by it, which can be translated both those ways, is the Hebrew word that the Chronicler uses in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He's speaking of David's descendants, or descendant, um, who shall be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And then God says in verse 12, he shall build for me a bayit, and I will establish his throne forever. By it is the same word that David used of the physical house in verse one, but here in verse twelve, it's obviously to be translated as household, not house. God's thinking of a a a a people, not a building. Michael Morales uh, in the book that we're going through in Sunday school, uh, "Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord?" and it, this just providentially happens to dovetail what we did in Sunday school this morning. But he clarifies what is going on here, and I'll uh, I'll read this quote from him. The bayit David would like to build for God is a house, meaning a physical house. Yahweh, however, honors David even while denying him his desire to build that house. Yahweh, rather, will build a David a bayit. Not only does Yahweh reverse roles, who's building what. But he also escalates the building project from a byit made with stones to a byit made with living stones, sons. From a byit as house to a byit as household. Yahweh will build David an enduring royal household, a dynasty. That's what God's promising in verse 12 in response to David's expressed desire in verse 1 to build God a building house. This household that God promises in verse 12 would be a royal dynasty that would have David, the son of Jesse, as its namesake and its fountainhead. Remember, Jesus is called David's greater son. Uh, in, In places. So David is the name at the the pinnacle of the dynasty. And God says, I'm going to give you that dynasty, David. And this was a dynasty that God, in David's day, as the, the, the chronicler is reflecting on here in verse 17, it was a dynasty that God had already begun to build. Right? It began when God called David out of the sheep herding business to become Israel's first Davidic king. In verse 7 we read of that. And now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, and this is what he's to say, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be leader over my people Israel. In other words, I've already done that in the past. It's already passed. I've already st- I started building this dynasty when that happened on that day when I called you out of the pastures. But then God continued to build that uh, dynasty of David's by increasingly cementing David's position of power and prestige as Israel's most important human ruler. And that's described in verse 8 of our text. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth." God had already begun to do this, you see. It was already in the process of being built. Morales, Michael Morales, again, in, in his book, Who Shall Ascend? The Mountain of the Lord. uh I encourage you to make Sunday school, by the way. This is great stuff that we've been talking about. He clarifies what's going on here. Again, a quote from him. The buy it David would like to build for God. No. I already quoted that. Where am I? Hold on. Give me a second. Lost my place. Okay, I found my place. So verse I just read verse eight. Now we're gonna so this is a dynastic house and rule through David and his descendants, which the Lord is going to establish for David. Now what's this dynastic house or rule gonna look like? That's we're gonna cover the remaining few moments of this sermon. What does it look like? that God is, has already begun to establish and is going to continue building upon this household. First, it's going to include a people, a ethnic people. Verse 9, look at verse 9, the first part of it. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, the one that you, David, are ruler over, that he mentioned back in verse 7, uh, that took him from the sheepfold, that you should be ruler over my people Israel, and that is part of that um, promise that God is giving uh, to David of this dynastic house. You're going to rule over a people. It's going to be Israel that you're going to rule over. A dynastic house full of subjects. It's also going to include land. A, better, I better. I'm going to rephrase that. It's also going to include a place. A place. Look at verse 9 again. And I will point a, a place for my people. Interesting he doesn't say land there. A place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, and they that they may dwell in their own place, and not and be moved no more, neither shall the wicked waste them any more as formerly. So it's going to include a place. That place in the old testament age was indeed a land, was it not? It was the land at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea between the Jordan River and the Dead Sea and the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. Bordered at uh, Lebanon and the River of Egypt. Right? It was a physical place then. But eventually it's going to be the greater Israel, the greater Canaan in heaven. But let's stick with uh, earth for, for the time being. So, David's uh, subjects were going to have a land, a place where David was going to rule over those people. A land where those subjects could live permanently, as we just read in verse 9, and they could live securely without being harangued by their enemies. And again, did, did, did geographic Canaan accomplish that during the Juda, uh, Judaite reign of David's son? Not really. Occasionally it came close. But it didn't accomplish that. Permanence didn't happen, did it? Babylon. Secure. Didn't happen. Afflicted by the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Aramaeans, the Bedouins and down south, you know, in Sinai and everything. Why? Because they sinned. Because they ignored God. They worshipped other idols. Yeah, that wasn't the true land. It was proximate land. It was the proximate place. But the true place was heaven. And this dynastic rule of David given in this covenant was he would rule over a people in a place and he would be given a special royal descendant who was the unique descendant. Verse 11, And it shall come about when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that i will set upon you uh, that i will set up one of your descendants one of your zerah after you who shall be of your sons and i will establish his kingdom and he shall build for me a house and i will establish his throne forever and by the way we're going to look at this next week uh oh children at play again um Lord willing, next week when we look at David's prayer, David recognized, he said in verse 17, uh, after he, when he responded to this covenant from the Lord, And this was a small thing in thine eyes, O God, but thou hast spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come. He knew he wasn't talking about any of his immediate descendants. David did. He already knew it's some descendant off in the distance in time. This descendant, this special royal descendant, was going to be one. Verse thirteen tells us who would have God Himself as his father. Verse thirteen: I will be his father, and he shall be my son. This special royal descendant was one who was going to, uh, from whom God would not take His loving kindness. Verse thirteen: um, And I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it away from him who was before you, meaning Saul. Not going to take it away from him. Oh, and by the way, you can argue that he took it away from some of the uh, uh, biological descendants of David who were faithless, who were covenant breakers, uh, whom he abandoned. Think of Manasseh and uh, uh, some of the others. He's not going to do that with this special son. And then finally, this divine descendant of David, who was promised in the Davidic covenant, was one who will would build a far more glorious house for God than David ever thought of building for God. Far more glorious house. He shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. This house that uh, David's greatest descendant was going to build for Yahweh God was going to be a corporate, spiritual house that would span the ages. Not just the New Testament, but the ages. Because <clears throat> da- Jesus' house includes the Old Testament saints, does it not? We're all part of one church, contrary to what our dispensationalist friends uh distinction they like to draw there. Again, morale, here's, here's the second Morales quote that I that my eyes caught the, uh, the previous one twice. Here's, again, Morales' insight into the significance of what is going on here is very helpful. So listen carefully to this, and, and this is in conclusion, by the way. Morales says, <clears throat> Through this buy it as household. In other words, he's referring to verse 12, the household that David's greatest son was going to build for God. Through this buy it as household, David's seed, Yahweh's son, they're one and the same, will build a buy it for Yahweh's name. In this manner, the buy it for Yahweh, the household for Yahweh, is utterly dependent Upon Yahweh's own faithfulness to build a byet household for David, so God's the success of God's house being built for Himself requires that God be faithful in providing the household for David through which God's Son Jesus was going to build Him a house. But it's through David that that was going to happen. In this manner, the bayat for Yahweh is utterly dependent upon Yahweh's own faithfulness to build a bayat as household for David. And there's the key point. Yahweh will, in a sense, build himself a bayat through David's household. And Yahweh did. And is still doing just that through David's greater son, God's son, Jesus, the exalted and enthroned Messiah. He is who this Davidic covenant that we have been looking at today is all about. It's all about him. And every other administration of the covenant of grace was all about Jesus. And the covenant of grace is all about Jesus. And the Bible is all about Jesus. I'm being obnoxious here, but I'm trying to make a point. But it all stems from the covenant that God the Father made with God the Son in eternity, and the Holy Spirit as well, to apply it. It's all grace. And we are the beneficiaries, folks. We are going to heaven, and nothing is going to prevent that from happening because of this covenant and this covenant mediator. Rejoice! Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your unfathomable grace in Christ, covenantal grace. And we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, took to yourself our humanity to bring about that that grace coming to us. You had to be us, like us, human, perfectly human, in every way that makes one human. Sin does not make one human. We rejoice that you were not like us in that way but that you acted as our substitute by becoming David's greater son. We ask Lord that you would help us in this day, in this week to marinate in that those thoughts to rejoice in our Savior, and the covenant that you made to affect our reconciliation. And that we would live in a way that demonstrates that gratitude. And Lord, if there's anyone listening to me in this room or remotely who doesn't know that grace, who maybe thinks he's a Christian, but isn't a biblical Christian, hasn't trusted in this Jesus, who is the God-man and the only Savior of sinners and the only way to heaven, hasn't trusted in him alone for his or her salvation, but is trusting in good works, baptism, church membership, in part, or holy. Lord, would you please show such a one that it's hopeless for him, unless he embraces this Jesus of whom I have been speaking and preaching. Would you please give faith to anyone who needs it, that he too might join this household of faith that Jesus is head of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.